God in heaven, we worship you for you are worthy of worship. We lay ourselves before you. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, speak. You've spoken by your word. And Lord, would you take these human words uh, and would you speak to our hearts and would you bring great glory to yourself and great glory to your son. And would you build us up as your people, we pray. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. An exciting uh, archaeological find has been unearthed. It's 2005 this was found. Uh, and it's believed to be the altar uh, of Joshua that we just read about in Joshua 8. Found on Mount Ebal in Israel. Uh, it consists, as you can hopefully see, of a ramp that would be used to walk animals up. Uh, there were chambers um, uh, in these octa- uh, rectangular sections for, for the fire, uh, for the fire pit for burning the animals. Uh, and there was an altar, a circular altar made of uncut stone. And what's more exciting is what they found in the pit, in the site, was loads of animal bones. Interesting, you're thinking. But all of these animal bones were what we call kosher animals. Animals that the Bible, that the Lord God had determined as clean. Animals that would be used for Israelite sacrifice. If that wasn't exciting enough, what else was found in 2022 was another incredible find. Uh, They call it the Ebal Covenant Cursed Tablet. A research team led by scholars um, announced the discovery of the lead tablet found again on Mount Ebal. And it contains some of the oldest in existence Hebrew inscriptions, uh, dated somewhere around 1200 BC, so uh, around the time uh, of the conquest. And what's on it? Well, it's actually a legal text that details a curse, and it invokes the name of none other than Yahweh, the God of Israel. Exciting, right? Once again, archaeology... Uh, confirms and supports what God's word had already said. But people of God, we have uh, even more reason to be excited and to be led to worship from what we find in Joshua 8. So let's dig in. Um, Let's just do a quick background and remind ourselves uh, where we've come from. Uh, Joshua 7, Israel, uh, if you weren't here, were to have found themselves under divine displeasure. There was an enemy in the camp. Uh, rejecting the Lord's clear word uh, and loving material possessions rather than the one who knits the, uni- uh, the material universe together, Achan brought near disaster upon Israel. Not least did Israel um, uh, fail to mount a successful attack on AI last time, uh, losing 36 of their fellow members. But Israel themselves were actually in danger of being under divine displeasure under what the Bible terms as being devoted to destruction. Israel could have been wiped out. And were it not for the decisive action of God's chosen servant, Joshua, who executed judgment by bringing justice upon Achan and all those that Achan's sin spread to, God's anger wouldn't have been turned away. And so we enter chapter 8 with that ringing in our ears and with great anticipation as to what's going to happen. So we've got this under two headings. Firstly, battle instructions and victory. Trust the covenant-keeping God. Battle instructions and victory. Trust the covenant-keeping God. Have a glance down at verse 1 with me. You'll find it really helpful, please, to have your Bibles open and we'll be working through this passage. 
So the Lord says to Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Significant words, right? Especially after chapter 7. Uh, and Joshua's given clear instructions. What's he told to do? He's told to take the whole army and attack AI. It's round two, rematch. Rematches are always juicy, aren't they? The suspense, the intrigue, what's going to happen? Well, we're not left to wonder too long about the outcome, are we? The Lord says to Joshua, I have delivered the king of AI into your hands. His people, his city, his land. It's exhaustive, right? It's so certain it's actually written in the past tense. I have delivered, as if it's already happened. And you'll notice it's the exact phrase that's used in chapter 6 when he talks about the king of Jericho. Delivered him into your hands. In fact, Joshua's commanded to do exactly as he did to the king of Jericho, isn't he? Verse 2. With two slight differences. Treasure and tactics. Treasure, unlike Jericho, Israel can carry off the spoils of war this time. You may carry off their plunder, it says. If only Achan had been patient and waited. It was coming. Treasure, tactics. So rather than circling the city seven times, tooting trumpets... What are they to do this time? The end of verse 2, have a look. They're to set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua takes 30,000 of his best fighting men, 10 times more than the amount recommended by the presumptuous spies in uh, chapter 7, verse 3. And what does Joshua do? He relays exactly the instructions of Yahweh to the people. Set an ambush, he says. Do not go very far from it. Stay alert. And because Joshua says, uh, because when I and all those who are with me advance on the city, and when the men come out against us, as they did before, we will flee from them. Joshua can anticipate their presumption. Verse 6, they will pursue us. He knows their enemies disdain for Israel and their disdain for their God. They'll come, they'll chase, they'll presume our fear and weakness, and Joshua's going to use it against them. Once they leave their city, Joshua says, verse 7, rise up from ambush and take the city. Now, it is vital that the people listen to exactly what Joshua says. If they're seen before the ambush, the plan will be ruined. If they launch too early from their hideout, they'll get caught. Now, assurance is given, verse 7, have a look. The Lord your God will give it into your hand, but the means of victory is unequivocal. Verse 8, do what the Lord has commanded. Only as Israel listened to their commander, as they listened to Joshua, and by virtue listened to God himself, as they listened to his every word and instruction, will they be successful. Verse 10. Uh, early the next morning, Joshua mustered the army. Now, we've seen this phrase before in the unfolding of the book of Joshua, and each time it accompanies a decisive moment in the life of Israel, crossing the Jordan, chapter 3, verse 1, circling Jericho, chapter 6, verse 7, judging Achan, chapter 7, verse 16. And so, the army moved forward, verse 11. They camped directly in front of the city. Verse 12, whilst the 5,000 ambush troops go and lay in hiding. Now, I don't know if you're uh, visual, I find it sometimes helpful uh, to, uh, to, to see things. Verse 13 actually underlines basically the geographic situation. We've got the main army camp in the north. And for those that like pictures, you can see it on the screen ahead. And we've got the ambush to the west. And the plan is that when the enemies come out of the city, the ambush will go in. 
And as we read verse 14 and following, this is the stuff that inspire both warrior and filmmaker alike. It's blockbuster material, and yet it's true events told by an expert storyteller, and they've even slowed down for us to savor. Okay, have a glance with me. When the king saw this, saw the men camped out at the front of the city, he and the men of the city, they hurried out early to meet Israel at the place of battle, at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. And the suspense is only dramatized by the narrator's comment in verse 14c, but he did not know an ambush had been set, out, set behind the city. So the plan is underway. Stage one, set the feigned retreat, verse 15. So Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them, and they fled towards the wilderness, a favorite tactic of the Mongols, apparently. And it worked, verse 16. All the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua, and they were lured away from the city. You can imagine the camera now zoom into the fortress gates, all the soldiers piling out, thirsty for Israelite blood, hurtling out one by one, one after the other, disc, dust kicking up behind them, until the final soldier leaves the city gates. Verse 17, not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. The city itself now wide open, unprotected. Switch scene, we're now with the hidden rear guard. They crouch behind the overhanging mound, waiting for the signal. Verse 18, it comes. And the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out towards Ai the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. And no sooner has the signal been given, the men, uh, the, the narrative speeds right up here. The men in ambush rose quickly, rushed forward, they entered the city, captured it, and quickly set it on fire. What a contrast, rapid, decisive, unstoppable. And verse 20, it's that moment in a film uh, where the bad guys, uh, the dread, the sinking realization is, uh-oh, it's a trap. And the text tells us they had no chance of escape because of verse 21, uh, once the fleeing enemy had now turned around to face them, verse 22, the ambushers came out of the city and pincered them from behind. So they're flanked at their rear and they're facing a charging Israelite army. And like Moses, with his staff, Joshua holds the javelin high, signaling to press on their attack. And the result is, verse 24, Israel cut them down, leaving neither survivor nor fugitive. The Lord had fought for Israel, and the victory was decisive. Israel plundered their enemies, verse 27, and having killed its king, verse 28 and 29, Israel raised the city to the ground, burying it beneath stones. The rematch was complete. Not much of a competition. AI take two was over. An incredible story and a true one at that. Uh, I've been reading the book uh, by Tom Holland called Dominion. Uh, and it's amazing how many kings uh, in our past or how many nations in history saw themselves as Joshua, conquering the world, defeating the, the Canaanites. Unlike our forebears, I think uh, we feel a little bit uncomfortable, don't we, when we hear about Yahweh as a warrior or we see commands to destroy this city or that city. And we're going to bump into this again and again, this call to devote to destruction these particular cities and these peoples throughout the book of Joshua. And so the question's presented to us, what do we do with this? So just five points I want to, uh, um, uh, four points I want to make as a, as a, as a quick aside. Number one, God is holy. The Canaanites, these peoples that God called Israel 
to annihilate were not innocent bystanders. Uh, the testimony of Scripture, and as well as uh, of archaeology and history, shows that they were morally abhorrent, incestuous, idolatrous, and murderous to the point of sacrificing their own children in fires. God is holy. He cannot stand sin. Secondly, God is merciful, though. The Canaanites had been given time to repent. You can read about that in uh, Genesis chapter 15, hundreds of years, in fact. And also, we see that when Canaanites do repent and when they do trust in the living God, they find mercy. Just take Rahab in this story. God is holy. God is merciful. God is just. As we've seen with Achan, uh, God does not distinguish based on ethnicity. God's justice is perfect. God is holy, merciful, just. God redeems. So God has been planning to rescue himself, a people, since they rebelled in the garden before then, from eternity. And this, the taking of the land of Canaan, is a key juncture within that unfolding plan. This is a one-time event. It's not to be repeated, like many of the events in the Bible. And it was also an event that pointed forward to a greater disarming of enemies, to a greater destruction of the enemies of God, the cross. Okay, let's say that, okay, you get that. Okay, God is holy. These people uh, deserved it. Uh, and it's not a license, it's, uh, but it was a one-time event in the unfolding of God's plan. Okay, how are we still to understand this passage today for me? Is it just another record of a, of a Bronze Age battle? Interesting for you uh, military history buffs and maybe good fodder for a Hollywood epic. But actually, does this passage have any relevance to my life today, right now? The answer is, praise God, hallelujah, yes it does. Because this passage is about our glorious, covenant-keeping, faithful God. It's about his amazing plan of salvation. And what more, this text is calling us right now to worship and to faith and to obedience. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy features really heavily in chapter 8. Uh, from verse 1, the, the pairing of those exhortations to not be afraid and to not be discouraged those two pairings actually bookend the book of Deuteronomy from verses, uh, chapter 1 to 31. So from verse 1 in our chapter to verse 29, the method of justice delivered upon uh, uh, that godless king is one that's stipulated in the book of Deuteronomy and all throughout the rest of the verses. But nowhere does Deuteronomy echo more clearly than verses 30 to 35. And that's our second heading a mountain ceremony and obedience. Commit to the covenant-keeping God. A mountain ceremony and obedience. Commit to the covenant-keeping God. Look at me at verse 30. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. So God's people were given specific instructions to undertake a worship ceremony when they entered the land. So having arrived in Canaan, Israel were to set up an altar, they were to offer sacrifices, they were to make a copy of the law, and uh, like one of the most powerful illustrations known to man, they were to stand before two gigantic mountains, Ebal and Gerizim. Half of the people on one, and half of the people on the other. One half proclaiming the covenant uh, blessings, the other half proclaiming covenant curses. And the stipulations and the regulations and these, the commands for this ceremony are found in Deuteronomy chapter 27. 
And amazingly, Deuteronomy 27 is almost a carbon copy of Joshua 8, 30 to 35. Uh, there's uh, too many, uh, I couldn't even fit in the table all of the comparisons, but there are some of them on the screen uh, for you to look at. There are too many to include. And so it seems the author of Joshua is screaming at us to notice Deuteronomy 27 and Deuteronomy as a whole. But the question is, why? Well, in one sense, chapters 7 and 8 of Joshua illustrate for us what the ceremony in Deuteronomy is trying to teach us. Remember chapter 7? Israel were under the covenant curse because of disobedience, weren't they? They'd broken covenant with God. In chapter 8, they're under God's blessing. They find success because of obedience, because of obedience to God's word. So here this ceremony is fitting as it picks up the unfolding story of Joshua so far. But I think the author wants to do much more. He wants to draw our attention elsewhere. Often in the Bible, when we see uh, authors that copy uh, previous texts, it's not only the similarities that we want to notice, but it's the differences. So what is the author of Joshua included within Joshua 8 that are different to Deuteronomy 27? And it's the prominence of Joshua. You see, Joshua is not mentioned at all in Deuteronomy 27, but he's all over this passage, isn't he, Right? So we've already seen in the unfolding book of, of Joshua, uh, Yahweh's servant, that he's the one who brought Israel into the promised land. He's the one who averted God's wrath against sin because of a sacrifice. He's the one who led uh, 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 his, God's people to victory against their enemies because of his faithfulness. But there's a great development here. Uh, glance at me at verse 30. Verse 30 picks up on Joshua as the one who builds the altar. Now, altars are the place for priestly sacrificial worship. But also, so far in the Bible, uh, in Genesis and in Exodus, those who build an altar to Yahweh are covenant mediators. Noah, Abraham and his sons, Isaac and Jacob, and Moses. And so Joshua is being cast in that light. There's the altar, verse 30. Verse 32 so far, the writing out of the law, of, of the Torah, of, of God's word, has been the job of Moses. However, in Deuteronomy 17, there are specific regulations for the king. And what the king is meant to do is that he is meant to make out a copy of the law of God. And so Joshua is performing this kingly duty. Thirdly, look at verses 34 and 35. They record Joshua speaking the entire law, the word of God, to his people. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses tells the people that there will be a prophet who will come from among them, from one of your own, and all the words of Yahweh will be in his mouth. And so here we have this Redeemer of Israel leading the people of God in worship of Yahweh, functioning in this prophet, priest-like, kingly fashion. I noticed something as the text was being read as well. This person in verse 9 who identified with the people he then comes down and goes into the valley. And then right now, he's preaching from a mountain. From the heights, from among the people, to the valley, to the mountain. And hearing this, we can't help, right, but cast our eyes forward in faith to see that this is really pointing to the greater Joshua. 
the true prophet, priest, and king, the true covenant mediator of God's people, us, the church, the one who leads us into God's promised land, the new creation, the one who is the very embodiment of the Torah, not just spoke it, but he is the word of God. He fulfilled it. The one who brought about a great rescue for his people, not like the battle of Ai, but from the tyranny of an impossible enemy, the enemy of sin and Satan and death. And we too found ourselves under God's divine curse because of our rebellion, because of our sin. The curses of Ebal should have fallen on us, except our Joshua didn't just build an altar. No, he laid his life down upon it. He was the sacrifice for our sin. And now, raised again as our high priest, he's the one who brings us in worship to our God. And so just as Israel on Mount Ebal would have looked at what Yahweh was doing through this human leader and would have brought their praise and worship to him, our hearts today should be led to worship as we look at what God has done in and for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, his faithfulness towards us, the way that he has kept his promise time and time again, his mercy in forgiving our sins. Like Israel, though, we're not there yet, are we? Yes, they were in the land, but there was still land to take. There was still a journey to make. There was tension. There was a now, but there's a not yet. There's fulfillment, but the best was yet to come. And so, how do they get there? How do we get there? We've had fulfillment. We've received salvation and the gift of the Spirit, and yet the best is yet to come. How do we get there? Well, the answer is the same, really. Uh, verse 33, Israel were given a choice. They were given two paths. The path, the Mount Ebal, disobedience, and Gerizim, obedience. What is fundamental and that's illustrated in Joshua 7 and 8 is the need for obedience to God. Yes, we are going to sin, and there's sacrifice for that. The Lord Jesus Christ, once for all, paid for our sins. We walk in repentance and faith, and yet the Christian life is one that is marked by increasing obedience to the word of God, one that's marked by increasing fruit, Christ-likeness, as we look like the one who rescued us. And to ask yourself a question, what area of your life, personally, do you want to see increased in obedience to the word of God? What area of our church life do we want to see increased in our obedience to the word of God? Perhaps for you it's a greater degree, a greater obedience to corporate prayer or individual prayer in accordance with God's word in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 1 Timothy 2. Perhaps for you it's a, a greater obedience to sacrificial service, using the gifts that God has given you in accordance with God's word in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4. Perhaps for you it's an increase in obedience to sacrificial giving in accordance with Acts 20, 35 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Or perhaps for you it's a greater obedience to the love for a stranger or, or greater obedience to not showing favoritism, loving those who are different or awkward. Perhaps that's me. Perhaps for you, it means reconciliation with somebody in this church family, a greater commitment to hospitality. There are so many ways in which we can look to grow in our obedience to the word of God. How do we do this? Well, firstly, none of this is going to come about without a love of the God of grace, without knowledge of and love for the one who rescued us and ransomed us and redeemed us with an everlasting love. 
Joshua and his generation needed to know the knowledge of the Torah. They needed to know the knowledge of God's word, to know it faithfully, to to meditate upon it day and night. If they were to walk faithfully before God, if they were to be the nation that God had called them to be. Uh, Notice, I don't know if you noticed it throughout this entire chapter, but particularly in verse 35, the repetition of the word command and the phrase, the book of the law. And Joshua read all of the words of the law. The emphasis on the word of God, and it's no different for us today. Obedience, our obedience to God's word, our conformity to Christ's likeness is only going to come through knowledge and obedience to his word. And so maybe you want to ask yourself, what are the types of things that are hindering your ability to read God's word, to hear God's word? Perhaps you're distracted. Maybe it's the phone or the games console, the obsession of that new program on Netflix, whatever it might be, even books or or sports, whatever it is. Perhaps you need to modify or even cut out certain habits that are merely a distraction and that are stopping you from hearing in full and obeying to the full the words of our living God. Perhaps you're distracted. Um, Practically, myself and Jody recently stopped taking our phones to bed because we found that we were just looking at our phones all the time and we we put them downstairs. It's been extremely helpful. Um, I've yet to read uh, the Bible in bed. I'm reading other books, uh, but uh, it's it's a stage of progression. So perhaps for you, maybe just leaving your phone elsewhere could be a helpful thing for you to utilize time in order that you might hear and seek to obey the words of God. Perhaps you're distracted. Perhaps though what's stopping you actually is disloyalty. For you, it might be disloyalty that's keeping you from reading and obeying the words of God. Some sin in your life. Something that you want to keep hidden away that you're ashamed of. And for that, the Lord is calling you to commit your allegiance fully to him. And Achan serves as a warning for us, right? Allow the conviction of God by his spirit over that particular sin to lead you to repentance to lead you to see his utter worth in comparison to whatever it is that you're treasuring, to turn away from it and to seek to commit yourself to him. You can do that even tonight. So as I close, Joshua chapter 7 and chapter 8 are illustrative in many ways of, of two distinct paths. AI the first time, the path of disobedience that led to destruction. AI the second time round, obedience that led to blessing and victory. And the focus of it all was God's chosen servant, the prophet, priest, king, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are two ways to live, brothers and sisters. Which way are we going to choose? The path of obedience and blessing, the path of disobedience. And Israel could take heart as they worshipped God on Mount Ebal because they saw what he was doing through this human agent. They were encouraged as they saw what God was doing through Joshua. How much more so this side of the cross as we see Jesus, the captain of our souls. Joshua died, right? And we know how the Joshua generation ended up. Just read Judges. But Jesus lives forever and seeks to walk us to the new creation. Let's place our trust in him. Let's pray.
God of all grace, God of unending mercy, you are also the God who is holy and just. And we bring you our worship. Lord, we uh, were under the covenant curse. We had broken your law. We had turned our backs on you. We had lived in ways that, that discredit your glory and your fame, uh, that, that trample your word under our feet. And yet because of your mercy and your grace, Lord, you have averted the disaster that was heading upon us because of the sacrifice of your son. And so we now are able to stand in the blessing of forgiveness, to find the newness of life, and to have the hope of the new creation. Lord, what a wonderful blessing that is. What glory that is. And yet, Lord, there's a journey still ahead of us. And there are two paths that face us. Father, we ask that you, by your spirit, would enable us day by day to walk in the path of obedience that leads to blessing and joy. And that you would help us to shun and to turn our backs on disobedience. That your name might be praised. That we, your church, might shine. That we might be a city on a hill. And that men and women might come to know you. We need your help to do this, Lord. So we pray that you would help us. And that you would gain all the glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now please stand as the musicians leaders in our final song of our only hope in life and death. Which is